On the moonless night of May 31st, 1915, the Zeppelin crossed the channel from Evere in German-occupied Belgium. It passed over Margate and headed for Stoke Newington in northeast London. Following the local railway line down to Liverpool Street, it dropped bombs and incendiaries across its route. At 33 Cowper Road, young sisters Elsie and Elizabeth May Leggett were killed. On Bowles Pond Road, married couple Henry and Caroline Good were caught in the flames. Then two other young children, Samuel Rubin and Leah Lerman, on Christian Street. By the end of its flight, Z-38 had dropped 91 incendiaries, 28 explosive bombs and a couple of hand grenades. Two days later, the final victim of the attack, Eleanor Willis, died of shock. We can imagine her trauma, how her sense of the world would have crumbled like those East End homes. She had been one of the first to experience a new type of warfare. Once, war had taken place in reasonably fixed and predictable locations, on the battlefield or at the walls of a besieged city. Now, for the first time, it could happen anywhere, to anyone, and it came not from land or sea, but from the skies. The next 50 years of warfare was shaped in this domain. Aerial bombardment allowed belligerents to attack the entirety of each other's economic infrastructure. Victory could be delivered, it was thought, by achieving aerial dominance. The following 50 years, after another innovation, Sputnik took to the skies, saw this domain extend up into space allowing for the establishment of global military intelligence and communication systems. And the development of the internet, in large part by the US defence sector, introduced a new domain for warfare, the informational and operational tools that we use to control our economy. Today, we find ourselves like Eleanor Willis, facing new threats in a world that is changing beyond comprehension. Aggressors can lay the foundations for attacks, not with bombs, but with mock ransomware attacks on countries' IT systems. These can then spill over into the wider world, causing hundreds of millions of dollars worth of damage. Defenders counter with their own versions of new technologies. Jet skis are fitted with explosives and remote controls to attack warships. $500 off-the-shelf drones harass troops and tanks. And the world itself is changing. New seaways in the Arctic bring distant rivals into closer proximity. Coastlines are reshaped. Heat and climate-related catastrophes bring new challenges to operations and to the maintenance of equipment. Hello, and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Johnny Dowling. And I'm Rian Owen. In this episode, we've partnered with Atkins to examine how modern engineering techniques can help countries build resilience and strengthen their defence infrastructure. And we'll see how a new domain of threats requires every asset, however distant it is from the front lines, however distinct it appears to be from military supply chains, to be secured against attack from the first stages of its design. We will see how climate change is shaping the landscape in which conflicts take place. This is in part driven by the defence sector's carbon emissions. We'll learn how countries are using their defence investments and estates to combat climate change and how new green technologies could lead to more efficient operations. We'll look at how information technology overlaps with physical infrastructure 
as operational technology and how this can be strengthened against challenges. And we will find out how all of these fields are tied together by any organization's most valuable assets, its people. New threats require new ways of thinking, and this must draw on mindsets and lived experiences that do not always find an easy home with traditional militaries. We'll see how engineering firms can introduce new diversity to their workforce, strengthening their ability to support the defence sector, and how they can welcome veterans, offering them new ways to use technical and organisational skills they have learned in the military. David Clark leads Atkins' work in the UK aerospace defence market and is the global lead for the company in the defence sector. Defence planners and the engineers who support their work must first consider the 21st century's fast-changing political landscape and an economic realm that faces its own new pressures. Western nations are vexed really by two things. One is the situation in Europe um, and, and you know, the activities both on the surface and below the surface of Russia. And of course, the, the growing threats from in Asia Pacific from, from China. You know, those are the things that are affecting Western nations at the moment. I think if you turn them particularly to the UK, you can't put those contexts with the backdrop of the cost of living crisis and clearly challenge on government funding, then you know, there has never been a time when the drive for efficiency but also effective delivery of capability to our to our military has never been never been higher. For a brief moment in the 1990s, it looked to some as if history had ended. With the end of the Cold War, more and more countries would adopt democracy and the rule of law, and there would be less cause for war. We'd all happily eat the same burgers, and united by that cheap and joyful shared experience, move towards a world without conflict. As David explains, that proved not to be the case. Conflicts proliferated even between nations who enjoyed the same fast food. Without peace, there were no peace dividends. Instead, countries had to consider new challenges from new nation-state rivals and from non-state actors while managing increasingly strained economies. The targets of these non-state attackers were not military bases and munition factories, but skyscrapers and subways. And when new regional conflicts began in Europe, initial attacks often came not from the air, but in cyberspace. That has been the experience of countries like Estonia, who faced more than three weeks of cyber attacks in 2007, after its government chose to move a Soviet-era statue in Tallinn. Ten years later, Maersk and FedEx were struck by the NotPetya mock ransomware attack, which targeted Ukrainian IT systems, causing hundreds of millions in damage. And earlier this month, an attacker was shown to have targeted UK voting systems. Potentially, Russia has been targeting uh, the electronic voting system. So this is a great example of trying to cause disruption in Western society. So you can, and you can imagine anything then that we do electronically in the modern world is open to some kind of threat. So you know, if you then put that into a defence environment, you know, we're very much involved in defensive cyber operations. So how does UK government make itself secure and its systems, its processes and its people secure from cyber attack? 
One role of engineers like those at Atkins in this new era of cyber warfare is to analyse these complex systems, to identify vulnerabilities and to figure out how they can be strengthened. We're an organisation that can help people understand what their uh, risk profile is. So from a variety of different kind of threats, um, and they can be physical as much as they can be people and procedural, as well as in cyberspace. So there's a broad, broad variety of threat analysis. We play a part not only in defence, but in the rest of the UK's critical national infrastructure and trying to secure rail systems or the, or the aviation sector or the you know, power and water, for instance. All those elements are critical and therefore, you know, and, 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 and we play a particular role in trying to secure those types of infrastructure. Governments around the world are paying increasing attention to how software systems and operational technology can be made vulnerable by components deep in the stack. That might be headline-generating concerns over using a potential adversary's components in 5G telecoms, but it extends to every software or internet-connected component, whether in military use or in vital public infrastructure. The US government has recently attempted to address this by proposing a vendor liability model. That would, with congressional support, see suppliers held responsible for security weaknesses and vulnerabilities. To avoid these financial risks, they would need to attest that they have followed a set of principles known as secure by design. One of the things that's really important for us is, and it's a phrase I know that's used a lot in the, in the Ministry of Defence, is secure by design. We as, as, uh, are looking to ensure that all our engineers, whether they're designing a water treatment plant or whether they're working on, you know, the next generation of um, you know, aircraft capability, need to have an understanding of cyber risk and, 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 and those kinds of resilient challenges that are brought by technology. So yes, looking back at old technology, dealing with obsolescence, dealing with with the challenges that, that those old technologies faces, but also thinking about the new stuff and how do you secure that and make that more resilient um, for the future. Conflict now takes place in cyberspace alongside physical space, but the physical landscape itself is changing. You know, climate change has has a number of different effects for, um, for, for, for military forces around the world. One is that climate change causes conflict, so, you know, we can see that now in, in places in Central Africa where food becomes scarcer, more difficult to grow and therefore mass people movement. Um, and that's, that, that causes challenges for, for, for governments around the world. Regions like the Sahel, the fertile strip of land south of the Sahara, have been long contested between different land users. As farmers and herders both seek to maintain access to land under increasing climate pressure, further conflict, often shaped around ethnic identity and religion, can be expected. National security planners must consider new sources of conflict between states and new challenges from non-state actors. They must address threats in new digital realms that interact with all the systems that support modern economies. They should consider how climate change will shape the landscape in which they work and how their work will impact climate change. How can they prepare themselves this new national security environment? As David says, it requires the defence sector to learn from the world of civilian engineering 
and engineers to learn from the national security sector. That diversity of experience and expertise can only be provided by a diverse workforce. One of the things that's really interesting is where, if you use people in those processes that are highly familiar with the engineering and operational aspects, if you ask them to then put a different hat on and think about, well, how, how if you were an attacker, how would you break down? How would you, you know, look at this this system? Often the the thinking is it can be constrained, yeah, clearly by their their, their their kind of personal backgrounds and experience. So what you really need to do is bringing people with different perspectives and different points of view. Um, you know, that's why partly why that our process has you know the human behavioural scientists in it and it has a range of other people in it. You know, people with a data and digital background rather than an engineering background. Because you need that breadth to to be able to just ask some slightly different questions of, of whatever it is you're looking at. The world we live in is increasingly complex and chaotic. One of the ways we understand chaos is through the idea of the butterfly effect that the flapping of the wings of a butterfly in the Pacific could alter the course of a typhoon in Asia. In recent years, a small Pacific island's choice over which foreign donors will help train its police has become a concern for policymakers in Washington, London, Canberra and Beijing. And the week before this episode aired, further potential for tension arose, as another island nation agreed to allow foreign Coast Guard vessels to operate in its waters. At worst, islands like these could, not for the first time, find themselves on the front line of a war over control of seaways. They're also on the front lines of the fight against climate change. Climate change will have an impact on where conflict happens and on how operations are conducted, says Richard Gutzel, Programme Director at Atkins. If we look at climate change, the predictions of climate change, there's probably two key things to emphasise. The first is the tempo of those operations. So when it comes down to high stress situations, natural disasters, which will become more common with climate change, and conflicts over resources, which will become more common with climate change, it's the military forces you call upon. So the tempo and call on our forces is going to become more regular. And the situations in which they're going to have to operate are going to become more challenging. Militaries are themselves significant users of fossil fuels and must take steps to mitigate those impacts. Statistics are a great way to look at that. So UK military, 3.1 million tonnes of carbon a year. That's about half of government emissions. That doesn't include overseas operations. Therefore, it's reasonable to assume that's that's quite a lot larger globally. The majority of that's equipment, and of that equipment, uh, aviation and fuel probably tops the list. But just like the rest of society, the rest of commerce and business, it's a case that there's an awful lot of different categories of emissions that you've got to go after there. It's your heating systems. It's your the commuting to get to work. It's all of those different things, and you've got to go after all of them to have a true impact on, on carbon emissions. And then you probably have some residual emissions that you've got to offset. Making an impact on climate change will require access to alternative fuel sources. 
That's one mission that the military cannot complete on its own. It's not just those frontline operations. They all depend on their supply chain and the resilience of that supply chain. And that's a national endeavour, not just a military endeavour. So down the line, we need to see that resilience uh, in order to sustain those operations. There's a huge amount of opportunity in that space as well. But if you look at how nationally we're transitioning and greening the grid and transitioning to e-vehicles and then transitioning to new heating systems, there is a national change programme that uh, we're, we're on that journey, delivering new nuclear power stations, delivering more renewables. That has a resilience effect on the military and they need to make sure that their supply chain for electricity and for everything else is resilient. A key challenge for any organisation is logistics. And this is even more so for the defence sector, as General Omar Bradley, the first chair of the US Joint Chiefs of Staff noted, amateurs talk strategy, professionals talk logistics. At first glance, it may look like the energy transition will present further logistical challenges. But David points out, it may actually bring operational benefits. So many operations are just moving supplies and things around. Well, there might be different solutions in those spaces for more electric vehicle, more alternative energy. And clearly in things like um, where you can do this with operational infrastructure, so camps or forward bases, actually removing the need to continually ferry fuel in and out is a great benefit, actually. So actually, if you can, the benefits of sustainable and environmentally friendly technologies have a military benefit as well. It's not easy to get that diesel fuel in. Actually, if you look at Afghanistan, a huge amount of effort was drawn away from the front line operations delivering the mission they're out there for to protect supply convoys. Civilian drivers trucking in fuel to fuel the planes, the vehicles that were conducting the operations. And that's hugely vulnerable and contributes to the cost of the operation, both in uh, money and and lives and injuries. So the chance to decouple from that supply chain and bring innovation is really, really significant. There's a tendency to think electric equipment is in some way less powerful than its diesel counterparts, but it can already make it easier for military professionals to maintain high tempo operations. And that advantage is likely to increase as R&D is focused on new electric vehicles. So it's not the case that decarbonized net zero equipment will give you less of an impact and less of an edge it's that it gives you a different edge now uh, and take electric cars which are probably the area that's had the most commercial investment huge amount of innovation in that space that actually offers significant advantages over fossil fuel engines it is easier to learn to drive an electric car there's less to do they're more reliable that's pretty key in the battle space. They're also faster to accelerate. Again, if you want to get somewhere quickly or get away from somewhere quickly to be able to jump on and go, as opposed to start the engine and change the gears, etc. But we have a well-established system for extracting and transporting fossil fuels. For the defence sector to take advantage of new vehicle technologies, there will need to be a national focus on developing new forms of electricity generation getting the UK electricity grid into, into field in, in pretty much all of the areas we're going to want to operate is not possible. But 
if you can deliver in-field generation of fuels in some form, that provides a huge capability advantage. And there's some great stuff being tested at the moment with solar generation. There's some great stuff uh, that's being innovated in the US in terms of in-field nuclear electricity generation, almost in containers. I was reading uh, a short while back about in-field hydrogen generation. So if you can get a water source and electricity source, you can create hydrogen fuel, green hydrogen. So unlocking from that traditional supply chain of shipping in fuel because you can use uh, net zero sources like electricity is going to be really powerful. Military procurement is a decades long process. Vehicles that are being commissioned now as the energy transition gets going will still be in use when, if everything goes to plan, we all live in a fossil fuel free society. And as military planners, you've got to be acutely aware of that because typically you're buying for uh, some years time because it has very slow procurement cycles and for uh, many, many years of use. So there's a report out uh, last week from the House of Commons Select Committee. There's about a thousand tanks and other military vehicles entering service in the next few years and they're going to have diesel engines and they're going to be in use until 2050 in many cases. It's the role of engineers to help military purchasers ensure they are ready for the energy transition. You know that in 2050 a diesel fueled piece of military equipment is not going to have the same capability edge as a net zero piece of equipment that's been bought through in 2040. So you've got a plan for that now. So at what point could you upgrade it and how could we make our fossil fuel kit uh, ready for upgrade? So how could we start to modularize uh, some of those capabilities? There are many big questions left to answer. We don't know in a number of sectors, what the fuel of the future will be. And it may well be fuels we haven't discovered yet. We've got to understand and do the right um, the kind of foresight scanning and deliver that modularity. There are considerations around that modularity, which you'll, you'll just need to build in upfront. So we have to make sure that you can economically switch over those propulsion systems in 10 years or 20 years, and maybe two or three times. One innovative field Richard has been working on is in the eVTOL, or electric vehicle takeoff and landing segment. This has almost entirely been developed by private businesses. It used to be the military sector drove a lot of innovation and you'd see that trickle through to, um, to the commercial sector, the military sector and the space sector, which were both very closely tied. But increasingly, the commercial sector has started to drive it in and of itself. As I say, in the e-vehicle space, that's come from the private sector for private sector use. And increasingly in the aviation space, particularly around EV tolls, but other, other fuel sources, that's coming from potential commercial sector applications. They're the, they're the bulk users. They're going to order thousands of, of vehicles, whereas the military now order a lot less as it's become more technological. Some of the most exciting innovations often come from small, agile businesses. But this approach to development does not fit well with the military procurement process. The challenge has traditionally been those procurement cycles. So we're talking two, three, four, five, ten-year cycles. That's not doable as an SME. You, you, you don't have the funding to, to get through those cycles. 
you don't have the funding to then fund a delivery program where you might not be getting paid for that equipment for another two, three years. I think understanding and mapping where defence can have a real impact will be useful in targeting that funding. The physical landscape is changing due to climate change, bringing new sources of conflict and new challenges to operations. But like those EastEnders living through the first Zeppelin raids, we are living in an era when war is conducted in a new domain, this time in cyberspace. The implications of this can be seen in the current conflict in Ukraine, as Tony Burgess, Atkins Account Director of Strategic Command, explains. There are sort of key well-known aspects around, first of all, what we're, or what we appear to be learning from Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and equally, Ukraine's innovation and creativity about how they've defended themselves. Secondly, we know from the various um, publications that have been produced over the last few years, and increasingly so more, more lately, about the fact that it's not just Russia we need to be concerned about, and it's not just other nations, it's individual actors as well that bring that uh, complexity and, and challenge. And then you can look at how do you secure your operations again through people, processes, infrastructure, and IT, and 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 increasingly OT. So by IT we mean information technology, your desktop computers, your networks, but your operational technology might be your manufacturing plant. It might be the systems that you know for a rail company operate signaling equipment. Though that's operational technology. One challenge to defence planners and to the resilience of national infrastructure is the discovery of vulnerabilities in older equipment. Where you might have equipment that is a, a lot older, um, you know, designed possibly in a world where uh, the cyber threat was not as it is today, then those pieces of equipment um, are offer you um, uh, quite a considerable threat especially as we're often at the subsystem level. So you might think your overall thing, yeah, that looks fairly modern. You know, Take an automotive example, that car looks fairly modern. But actually, you might well find that there are components within that car that were originally designed some time ago. Expert analysis can help equipment owners identify vulnerabilities before adversaries do. And the secure by design approach can help ensure vulnerabilities are not introduced with new equipment. Secure by design is proactive security rather than that you, you build something and then you react to those, those vulnerabilities as they come about. So it's about having strong, secure foundations right at the start of when you design and then build that uh, piece of infrastructure, whatever that is. Vulnerability analysis and the implementation of secure by design must take place alongside the convoluted process of military acquisitions. It's about how we understand those technologies as early as possible. Because one of the things that is a challenge in, in, with the speed of acquisition in the UK is ensuring that those technologies are well, secure if you introduce new new systems 
um, in, with, uh, you need to ensure that they are completely safe. Now, clearly in the air domain, that's a, that's a big task, right? Certifying a new aircraft design is quite a considerable challenge and takes a long time. So how we now use digital techniques, how do we use more data techniques, the advent of digital twin and simulation and modeling to speed these processes up has got to be part of the answer. If you are going down that step of, of buying or procuring something, then for me, a key part of it will be to ensure as part of your valuation that you're looking at the security components and making sure um, you understand and, and ideally you minimize those risks uh, ahead of selecting the various piece of, of software or hardware. A good way to de-risk those purchasing decisions is to introduce modularity and iterative change. This is an approach that has been commonplace in private industry. Defence has long wrestled with some of these some of these challenges. We have a challenge around how you how you set the right requirement. And I'll give you an example. If you're if you're an automotive manufacturer and you're bringing out a new a new car, you know you will you will generally do this on a you'll get out your first model and your first model it. You know, is, is out and is launched into the market. You know that you've got a whole bunch of things within that design that weren't 100% as you wanted them. But you make sure it's in the market and you make sure it's being used. And then you'll upgrade that in blocks. We often think of defence acquisition in terms of a project, so it has a start and a finish. And actually, if we started to think of defence acquisition in terms of product, where we're creating a capability that has an initial release, and then we're going to continue to upgrade and evolve that through time, it's a different, me different mentality. But some of the biggest risks come at the infrastructure level. Here, the challenge is not the equipment or the individual components in isolation, but the interaction of different systems with each other and with people. Infrastructure is critical to the operation of the country. So, you know, water is a great example. Um, you know, power, you know, these are critical components of sustaining, you know, sustaining the country. And therefore, you know, securing that infrastructure is of vital importance. One of the things that we bring in this space is a deep understanding of the engineering and operational context of, you know, let's say uh, a power station. Because you design power stations, um, we can understand how then those risks are going to manifest themselves and can better deploy the kinds of technologies or the kinds of defense mechanisms that will help make it resilient. The individual or the people or you and I are, are probably the greatest risk that we have. Um, not probably mostly not maliciously, um, but through mistakes, through errors, through misjudgment, uh, through inexperience, through lack of training, those individuals may do something uh, or will do something that will compromise security. 
and that could be as simple as clicking on something on an email um, or providing access to information. And again, that's readily reported um, and you only have to look at uh, Northern Ireland as a, a real life example of that. In Northern Ireland, a document listing details of 10,000 serving police officers was mistakenly posted online in response to a Freedom of Information request. It was taken down after three hours, but this has caused serious concern given the region's complicated history. In Florida, an attacker tried to dangerously increase chlorine levels in the tap water. This was possible, a subsequent investigation found, because the water treatment plant had used TeamViewer, a common remote desk application used by IT service staff to control its systems using a shared password with no firewall. Mistakes and vulnerabilities like these often appear obvious with hindsight, but spotting them before they have consequences takes a different way of thinking. It's a way of thinking that is often distinct from that fostered by military training. It's that kind of interesting combination of people that understand technology, people that understand cyber risk, but also consultants that understand people behaviour. I think the reality is probably getting more more people who are used to dealing in that environment and probably the younger younger generation and how we support those people who are uh, not of that generation uh, but they understand it and whether we help them with that training support uh, education um, as well as probably thinking slightly different around that mix of uh, the people who are uh, defending the nation both in the three main services and the infrastructure that supports that as well. Organisations, whether in the military or in national infrastructure, face a diverse range of challenges. They can only meet those challenges with an equally diverse workforce. New team members can bring those new ideas if they are encouraged to share them. Neha Bassan is part of that new generation. She joined Atkins as a graduate and not knowing the direction she wanted to take her career was put forward for a project in defence. She is now a senior consultant, currently working in Atkins's Aerospace Defence Security and Technology Division. When I joined Atkins, my first role that was offered to me was in defence, and I said, that's not for me. I, why have you put my name forward for this consulting role? I don't feel like I can do it. I don't know anything about the defence industry. It's not my kind of role. And actually, after that role, I went on to do two more projects in defence because I enjoyed it that much. So I think it just goes to show that even though I didn't have the skill set or the experiences or could affiliate to working in the defence sector because of some of this historical bias and prejudice, I actually really enjoyed it and really like thrived in that environment. Defence needs to be more open to bringing in people from different backgrounds, but also people with different experiences. You don't necessarily need to have defence experience to work in defence. Um, and I think that's, you know, those, that interchangeability of different skill sets is really, really important to collaboration, innovation and bringing that diversity of thought to the work. But that process of finding her feet in the role was undermined in one of her first meetings. One of my first roles um, for a defence client, I walked into a boardroom um, and there was only white middle-aged men um, and I was by far the minority. 
I was the only female. Um, I was the youngest by far in their room. Um, I'd still come in there, um, as as had everybody else, to to do a job. Um, and um, I came from an Indian background, so I definitely didn't fit fit the kind of stereotypal mix. And immediately it was almost taken for granted that I was sat there to do the minutes of the meeting. Um, someone said, oh, is Neha taking the minutes of this meeting? And I think that really fueled my desire to really want to change things. I think what I would have appreciated at the time is probably some of that like active bystander where someone else had like challenged or, you know, pushed back on my behalf. Um, but equally, I think the empowerment comes with yourself. I think when you're very early on in your career, you feel like you're not empowered to say, well, actually, you know, I'm not here to do the minutes. I'm here to do this or um, and really stand up for yourself. And you need some of that active bystander allyship from others in, in the business to kind of set those people straight, really. One thing that gave Naya the confidence to contribute fully to the job was talking to other women. It was only when I shared some of my experiences with other women that I realised that I wasn't actually alone. One of the fundamental things for me was taking the Inspire Women's Development Programme at Atkins because it allowed me to see that there's a lot of other women who feel like this, but it gave me con- con- confidence and things like assertive communication, the way I conduct and carry myself. And actually, you know, I bought in to do to do a certain job and have a certain skill set and I'm more than capable to do it. So it almost helped me address some of that imposter syndrome that I felt. Understanding that you're not alone in your own experiences can help anyone overcome nagging doubts about their skill set or role within an organisation but it's equally important to understand each other. One thing we do here at Atkins is um, reverse mentoring, where, um, for example, in my division, every senior leader um, is encouraged to have a reverse mentor. And the reason for that is it promotes intergenerational diversity of thought, so that if there's any kind of senior leadership decisions where they need an alternative opinion or a viewpoint, they can bounce their idea off maybe a more kind of junior member of staff, and it promotes some of that intergenerational uh, diversity of thought. Often organisations think of diversity in terms of gender. That's only one aspect of building a workforce that can support the defence sector as it faces diverse threats. Diversity isn't just about gender diversity, and I think it's often regarded as just about gender diversity. I think that's not to negate from the fact that gender diversity isn't important. It definitely is important. But equally, there are so many other facets to diversity. People who might have a disability or those who maybe sit in kind of um, have, you know, a different way of thinking and doing things or might come from a neurodiverse background um, or, you know, for example, race. There's so many other facets to diversity. By excluding people or not considering their needs, organisations can miss out on the perfect opportunity to make use of different ways of thinking. And those ways of thinking may be perfectly suited to countering the threats of our digital age. There is uh, thinking and research that, you know, those with more from more neurodiverse backgrounds are actually great um, cyber security consultants. They excel in, in that kind of space and in that field. And, you know, there's lots of groups out there like um, neurodiversity and cyber that look at specific ways to kind of encourage and promote those from more neurodiverse backgrounds to take careers in the cyber space. Often um, people with these different 
ways of thinking, when they all come together, they can assess different points of view and different ways of working and could maybe, you know, try and understand a hacker's mindset, for example. So, yeah, I think it's just about bringing those different ways of thinking and those different people together to collaborate. Diversity doesn't just mean finding a place for those who don't fit into our stereotype of the national security workforce. It also means helping people from a military background see how their skills can fit into the corporate world. At Atkins, we have a programme called Partnering with the Armed Forces that supports those who are leaving, um, you know, the military and want to take up a, a, a work in the corporate environment and helps them to realise that they actually have, have those transferable skills from, from the military. A team lead in the military, they have those people management skills, they have those working under pressure skills that you need for a project management role, for example, to be a good project manager. The same practices that helped Naya find her way in Atkins, reverse mentoring, experience sharing forums, active allyship, can also help veterans see how their own skills are transferable. Whilst they might not have the technical know-how of project management, they still have the time management, negotiation, and people management, working under pressure, all transferable skills that they've learned in the military that they can take and put into the corporate environment. And I think then it's up to the organisation like Atkins to support their transition into the corporate world um, through things like sharing experiences, mentoring, support programmes, alumni networks, people to share their experiences coming out of the military. The changing landscape of threats will require change in our approach to defence, and that change is happening. Lessons are being learnt from the private sector, experience is being gained from industry, and diversifying the delivery team is bringing new perspectives, new approaches, and expanding our armoury. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and produced by Will North and hosted by me, Johnny Dowling, and by Rian Owen. Series supervision and editing by John Young. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. And the expert who spots vulnerabilities in our process is Rory Harris. Thanks to our partner for this episode, Atkins, and thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.com. Dot media and on LinkedIn.